The Entrepreneur Studio is powered by Heartland. Now business owners can finally get one solution for everything to do with point of sale, payments, and payroll. Get tools that easily grow with you, plus a local partner who can help make everyday work better. That's why over 750,000 customers, from family-owned shops to Fortune 500s, all rely on Heartland. See the show notes of this episode or visit heartland.us to learn more. We wanted to be the place where a teacher in a low-income community could get discovered by donors far beyond their personal network. Because we thought that that would be a way to be a force for ensuring that kids in low-income communities can get the same books and art supplies and science equipment that kids in upper-income communities do. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Allen. And today we're speaking with philanthropist and crowdfunding pioneer, Charles Best. Charles Best is the founder of Donors Choose, a nonprofit organization that connects teachers in need of classroom resources with donors who want to help. In this episode, Charles shares the story of what motivated him to take on this work, as well as the unwavering determination that guided him from grassroots marketing techniques to receiving national recognition, including an endorsement from Oprah Winfrey. Thank you for listening. This is part one of our conversation with philanthropist Charles Best. Hey, Charles Best, thank you so much for coming to the Entrepreneur Studio. Chris, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. I'd love to just dive right in because ultimately your kind of origin story is, uh, I would say, one of the more unique ones to kind of go from where you were to the type of business that you built. So talk to us about like, you know, being a teacher and what got you sort of enthusiastic about like, I got to do something about this lack of resources that teachers have. Yeah. Well, the origin story starts with being a teacher. I knew I wanted to be a teacher since I was in high school. I had this amazing English teacher and wrestling coach. His name was Mr. Buxton. I really looked up to him. I wanted to be like him. So I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Started teaching my first year and my colleagues and I were spending a lot of our own money on all the school supplies you can imagine, copy paper, pencils, markers, poster board. What I really wanted for my students was for them to be able to read Little House on the Prairie. And I would go to the photocopy shop every morning at like 5 a.m. and make photocopies of that day's section of the book, which probably violated some copyright laws. And I thought about all the other things that my colleagues wanted to do with their students, books they wanted their kids to be able to read a field trip. They wanted to take their students on a science experiment that just needed a pair of microscopes. And I just figured there must be people out there who'd want to help teachers like us if they could see where their money was going. Yeah. I felt, I felt there, there, there are folks who, who want to support public school classrooms, but who are skeptical about writing a check and feeling like it's going off into Mm -hmm. sort of a a dark hole of a, of a bureaucracy, but thought, well, what if we teachers, who know our students better than anybody else in the system. And we know exactly what materials would make the biggest difference in their education. If we could post requests for those very materials, tell the world about the projects we wanted to do with our students. And then if donors could choose the classroom request, choose the project they wanted to support, well, then my colleagues and I would be able to take our students on that field trip, get them that set of books, be able to do that science experiment. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of made sense, even though this is years and years before crowdfunding was a was a word or a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing that I think is there's a lot of things that you did that were a thing before it was a thing and we'll get into that. But like here's what I remember. 
it would be like, you know, the parents at, you know, we'd have orientation. The parents would be like, here's the list of things you need to bring. And that was kind of it yeah. for the year. Much le- not to mention the book and, you know, to go on the field trips and all the other things that, that you were talking about. I'm like, man, that's, that's an advanced move. Like we, those things were not really done, you know, back when I, when I was a kid or when I have four kids and they're not using the same technology in, in some, some cases, but some of them are using donor shoes, which is cool. But I find it really, really interesting that you had a belief that there were other people out there. And pr- this is probably like email was just becoming a thing. Digital is just becoming a thing. And you have this idea that other people are out there because your audience wasn't just parents of the class. So talk to us about how that hunch sort of, how did you have this hunch and, and go like, I believe that there are other people out there that would do this. And this idea to bring people who don't necessarily have a vested interest in their child would want to do things based on projects. You're really putting your finger on it that our primary audience was actually not parents when we, when my students and I created Donors Choose. I, I was teaching at a public high school in the Bronx, very low income neighborhood. My students' parents usually did not have the means to buy all the stuff on a checklist. Yeah. And so I just saw my students going without. And the idea for Donors Choose was not so much to be a way for parents to donate to their own kids' classrooms, because that would probably attract mostly middle-income and upper-middle-income folks. We wanted to be the place where a teacher in a low-income community could get discovered by donors far beyond their their personal network. Because we we thought that that would be a way to be a force for equity, to to be a force for ensuring that kids in low-income communities can get the same books and art supplies and science equipment that kids in upper income communities do. So, and, and yet that was setting out to, to do something a heck of a lot more difficult than just being a donation kind of payment processing mechanism for a parent to give to their own kid's classroom. We, we were setting out to, to put people together who, as you just said, had never met before. So I listened to your story and it's like, there were really three innovations. The first innovation is a digital marketplace. <laughs> the second one uh, is crowdfunding, and the third one is cause marketing. And I, I think as we break down the, the your story, I, I think it's really important to take each one of those things and talk about those innovations and what it was kind of like to even think like that. Because I mean, if you think about what you just talked about, to instead of thinking I can send emails to parents and they will give to their kids stuff, that is a very one dimensional sort of linear way of thinking. That is only one small piece of the problem uh, and and being able to process a payment is only one part of the problem. It is bringing awareness and getting a teacher to kind of be on display with the type of teaching that they do so that they can fund really, really cool projects. So we talked about the innovations, talk to us about the birth of each of those ideas and then like how you got it off the ground. Absolutely. Well, let's start with, with crowdfunding, which then we'll move into digital marketing and, yeah. and cause marketing. The very first crowdfunding campaign was in the 1880s. It was the installation of the Statue of Liberty. This guy, Joseph Pulitzer, who was the publisher of the New York World newspaper, saw that the U.S. government didn't have the funds to actually install the Statue of Liberty that had been given to us by France. And he called on his readers to all come together and make small donations, whatever they could spare, $1, $2, $5, to collectively fund the installation of the Statue of Liberty. That was probably the first crowdfunding campaign wow. ever. Fast forward to the late 1990s, there was a British rock band called Marillion, and they wanted to do a reunion tour, and they wanted to circumvent their record label 
and kind of do it on their own. And they did what you just said. They sent an email, blast email out to their fans and without a website, nevertheless got their fans to all make small donations to fund the reunion tour of this rock band. Mail, mail your cash to this address. Probably. Exactly. <laughs> Basically, yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. Donors Choose then started in, in the year 2000 and, and we didn't appreciate it at the time, but what we were endeavoring to create was the first digital marketplace, the first platform where people on the front lines, in our case, teachers could create project requests and where anybody could then be a philanthropist, a, a, a patron, a, a financier. We, we didn't realize that this kind of represented the birth of crowdfunding. In our minds, this was just common sense. We, we teachers have all these ideas of just what resources would make the biggest difference for our students. We know there are folks out there who'd probably wanna support public school classrooms where the need is greatest. Mm -hmm. If they could see exactly how their money was being spent, let's just bring those two groups together on yeah. a website but it, I think it was a little on, more significant than, than we realized. That's right. Yeah, wow. And I can share on the digital marketing front, I, I was not a techie. I used pencil and paper to draw out this website where teachers could create project requests and donors could support a project of their choice. I found a programmer from who had recently immigrated from Poland for $2,000. He was willing to take my pencil and paper drawings and turn them into version one of Donors Choose, wow. which was so rudimentary, we had no back end. We just had one page that you would scroll down and down and down for like 15 minutes until you got to the teacher or the wow. project record that you were looking for. So people to, were trying to get to the top. Yeah, exactly, okay, yeah, exactly. Rankings. Yep. To process a donation, I needed to use one of those black boxes that you'll see at the grocery store where they'll punch in your credit card number, expiration date, send it over a, a, a telephone line. That's what I used to process every donation by hand. Wow. Um, I also uh, realized I had forgotten to toggle an important setting, so I actually was never transacting any of those donations that oh I thought I was. Gosh. And then six months later, I had to call all those donors and say like, we actually never managed to transact that donation. I'm, I'm gonna run it again six months later. Hope that's okay. Oh man, um, lessons learned. Yes, yes. So that gives you a sense of how new we were at this, my students and I, and, and my colleagues who were creating the first projects. Um, that's how we got the tech created. And I'll, I'll roll into how we, we got folks to actually yeah. uh, use the site. Is that all right? Should, should Please, we? no, seriously. That, now we're getting into marketplace because it's like, how do we get the teachers and then you got to go get the donors. So but tell us how you brought them together. Yeah, old school. So I, I don't know how it is at Heartland Payment Systems. I, I suspect it's similar to what it was like at Wings Academy, the public high school in the Bronx where I was teaching, where if you really wanted to get folks to do something, you'd give them a little free food. And so when this, this happens, th does it? All right. Mm -hmm. So when this programmer had created version one of Donors Choose, I had to get the first teachers to create the first projects. So I asked my mom to make her famous roasted pear dessert, which she would, she would roast these pears with orange rind and apricot jam and all these spices, roast them in the oven and the juices would swirl all around. And let me tell you, these tasted something delicious. So she made uh, 11 of those pears and I brought the 11 wow. pears into the teacher's lunchroom. And as my colleagues got ready to pounce, I said, hold up, there's a toll. If you eat one of these pears, you gotta go to this new website called Donors Choose and just ask for whatever it is you most want your students to have. That sounded like a good enough deal. They ate the 11 pears. They posted the first 11 project requests on the site. 
my aunt, who's a nurse. They she, made good on all 11. They did. 11 that's pairs were great. eaten. 11 projects okay, got posted. There's awesome. no breakage. And my aunt, who's a nurse, she funded the first project. I didn't know any more donors to fund the other 10 projects. There was no liquidity in this, you know, nascent marketplace. Was there a time bomb on these things? Like the, did you have that or was it just, they were up there in perpetuity until they were funded? You know, I guess they would have been up there forever, but I think I only had a month or so to prove that it worked enough that my colleagues would want to spread word to yeah, other teachers. Yeah, yeah. So I anonymously funded the other 10 projects because I didn't know any more donors beyond my aunt who had, who had stepped up for the first one. I was able to, I could afford this because I was still living at home with my parents and they were not charging me any rent. So I could spare some of my teacher's salary there you go. To, to fund those 10 projects. I, I did fund my colleagues' projects anonymously. So they mistakenly thought that the website actually worked and that there were all these donors just hanging out on this website waiting to fulfill a teacher's classroom dream. And that rumor spread across the Bronx and teachers started posting hundreds of projects on our site, projects that needed a whole lot more money. And than, then your wallet had a problem. My wallet had a big problem. <laughs> and I honestly, I, I didn't quite know what I was gonna do now that there were a couple hundred projects from, from teachers all over the Bronx on our site. But my students, came to the rescue. I think they could see the, the potential of this experiment or they just felt bad for me. I don't know which yeah. one, but it was enough to inspire them to volunteer after school to help get this thing off the ground. And they hand addressed and, and put together about 2000 letters to people all over the country telling them about this website where someone with $10 could be a classroom hero. They got the addresses out of my high school and college alumni directory. They're writing these letters uh, to people all over the country. We sorted the mail ourselves so that we could get the cheapest postal rate. So every desk in my classroom represented a different part of the country, piled high amazing. with letters. So, so this is during so got, class time or after class? Time? It was after school at okay, least. Got it. it was after school. All right. And then we carted these sorted letters to the post office and my students' letters, those 2,000 letters, generated $30,000 in donations no to way. projects on the site. So we were, we were kind of able to just hand crank the pump and get the flywheel to start to spin. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the, the key lesson here is that there was not a techie silver bullet you know, yeah. digital solution to kind of jump starting the marketplace. We, we, we went with food bribery and handwriting letters to get teachers and donors onto the site. That is amazing. Where did you get this site registered? Like where was the registrar at that time? It, it was, like, I think, how did you shop for the domain name? That's what yeah. I'm trying to say. Like, yeah, it, 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 I paid eight bucks for donors choose, you know, GoDaddy. Um, oh, GoDaddy, okay. That's right, that's right. Um, you know, honestly, if there's one thing I wish I could do over, it's the name. Donors choose is a decently literal indication of how the site works, but it doesn't say anything about education. Yeah. The syllables are actually hard to say. Like um, people have a hard time remembering the, the name donors choose. They want to switch it to donors choice or just call it donors. And they put apostrophes in funny places. Yep, yep. And I really wish I could rewind and actually bring in an expert naming branding consultant to, to come up with oh, a different the name. Lessons. The lessons. You're Eric, like entrepreneur studio. Ex <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, you, you're probably familiar with um, Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup. Mm -hmm. And as you probably know very well, it argues that entrepreneurs should not try to perfect and polish their, their product. They should launch as quickly as possible with a minimally viable product to start getting customer feedback ASAP and, and to iterate. Yep. But I feel like there should be an official 
exception to the lean startup school of thought for brand names, which you cannot launch in minimally viable form and you cannot iterate on based on customer feedback. Changing you brands can, is really hard. You can do a hard pivot, but you cannot iterate on a brand name. Yeah. And before you know it, there might be some news coverage of you using your original name. Yeah. And so then before you know it, you're like, well, even if our name isn't ideal, I can't switch it because then this news story, which is my calling card, will be referring to you know the old name. So I'm stuck. And I think actually that it, I, I'm kind of allergic to bringing in consultants and outside experts, yeah. but, but I wish I had with our brand name. Yeah, naming choices are really huge. I mean, people struggle with that with products, struggle with it with like the names of companies and things like that. It's a, it's a real, it's a real, real issue. I mean, you look at just Facebook and Google and how they've changed their parent company names because they outgrew, like they are different companies, yes. you know, now. And those, those are just really products inside of their company. So, I mean, we, I would agree as a marketer, it, the, one of the hardest thing to do is to take brand equity, like what people know and what they think of and how they feel about it, to port that over to something new is really, really hard, really hard. It takes a lot of money to do. That's right. And very few people do it successfully. That's right. So I'm in your camp on that. I think there are some people that really stress about it, but I do think that lean startup idea of getting to, um, you know, getting to market quickly and getting feedback and trying to find a just initial traction or product market fit is really, 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 really important. So we talked about the marketplace and that it was like sort of like hand delivered success. How did you get into like a little bit of traction where it went beyond a lot of the grassroots guerrilla marketing stuff? How did you sort of make the first step into, into, into sort of acquiring donors that were maybe outside of the warm network? Cold calling for news coverage. Wow. Okay. So I, I just found the phone numbers uh, and sometimes the email addresses, because remember this is the year 2000. So, so it was still, you know, calling people up on the phone was the most common form of communication. And I, I would cold call every reporter whose name I could find. And I probably had to make 50 phone calls for every one reporter who was interested enough in our story to, to cover a new kind of charity operating out of a classroom in the Bronx. You know, it had a yeah, decent yeah. hook, but yeah, we, were, we were brand new and um, had not gained that much traction. But we started to get some reporters uh, doing, doing stories about us. And actually when 9-11 happened, this is just one year into Donors Choose now, teachers at the public schools surrounding Ground Zero started posting projects on our site to recover from the attacks on the World Trade Center. Wow. There, there was a teacher who's a math teacher whose students' calculators were sealed at the disaster site and she needed a new set of calculators for her students. There was um, a teacher in the Bronx who wanted to bring in an artist who had immigrated from Afghanistan for students to be able to meet someone from that country and there was a first grade teacher whose students had been saved by a particular group of firemen. And she and her students wanted to thank the firemen who had saved them mm. by doing a musical performance in front of their fire ladder company. And for that, for that, they needed musical instruments. So there are hundreds actually of these projects focused on 9-11. And this was right when people yearned to participate in the 9-11 recovery effort. Red Cross had almost too many blood donations yeah. than they could put to good use. And here was this direct, vivid way for people to participate 
in the 9-11 recovery effort around Ground Zero. And that was enough of a hook for several other news outlets to do stories on donors' Jews. Which that isn't, I mean, that's incredible because you had to have, some people had to know about the site, right, in order to, to publish those things. And then the way you started to acquire, I'd say coverage, right? Like you, you had at least some, some stories that had been done and then the stories accelerated. And it was like, you know, you've got this, you've got a nexus or initial traction of, something I'd say like, how did it feel to be like, what was going through your mind? Who were you, who, what team were you working with? And what was going through your mind when it's like, okay, I'm a New Yorker. We're going through uh, this thing as not only a New Yorker, but 9-11. And then I've got something that is helping people contribute. Where were you at sort of mentally on that one? Well, it was exhilarating to feel like people, some folks were, were putting their faith in donors choose as, as their way to, to be of service. That, that felt exhilarating. It felt like a big honor. Felt like we had to do right by that. Felt like an opportunity for donors choose. I will tell you one of the most embarrassing things I ever did as a entrepreneur was, was right at this time. Let's hear it. I had, I had, <laughs> I had cold called a reporter at the New York times who was covering philanthropy. Her name was Stephanie Strom. She was okay. a new reporter covering this, this new beat of, of philanthropy and charities. And I, I, um, I mailed her some materials. I didn't hear back from her. So I called her up and, and she said, yeah, I, I got your materials, but you know, donors choose. This is not exactly a newsworthy story. Maybe if, if ever I'm asked to do a, a listing of online charities, which was a new concept at the time, maybe I'll do a story on you, but this is kind of small potatoes. So I was like, all right, too bad. And I figured I'd, I'd try one other big time reporter. I, I called the senior editor at Newsweek. His name was Jonathan Alter. I called him first because his letter showed up. His, his last name was first in the alphabetical directory. And his assistant must have been out to lunch because he picked up the phone and I said, hey, I'm a teacher in the Bronx. I started this nonprofit with my students. You want to hear about it? And he, he said, sure. And we talked for my whole lunch break. And he wrote uh, a couple paragraphs for the Newsweek website saying that here was this charity that might change the face of philanthropy. So I called up Stephanie Strom at the New York Times, all excited. And I was like, hey, Newsweek saw us as newsworthy, at, you know, at least for their website. So won't you give us a second look? And she said, I wouldn't touch your story with a 10-foot pole now that another outlet has covered you. The New York Times does not follow in the footsteps of other publications. Wow. So I felt like an idiot for, for having, uh, you know, not realized that, you know, you don't talk about another outlet covering you if you're if you're pitching the New York Times and I, I wrote her an email apologizing for for being so dumb and and she wrote back and she said you know you shouldn't feel so bad because yeah like come on who who knows that you're like well it makes sense now but like right, who exactly, knows exactly, that exactly 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 so she she wrote she wrote back saying you know you shouldn't you shouldn't feel so bad uh, because you didn't have a chance in the first place because her editors had asked her to focus on charities responding to 911 and I was like, oh, wait, so here's actually my opening because all these teachers beside Ground Zero are posting projects on our site focused on 9-11 recovery. So I, I, I wrote her an email over the weekend telling her about all those projects. And I, I called her up over the weekend so I wouldn't interrupt her while she was on deadline, left her a voicemail saying, this is the last time you're going to hear from me if you could just read this one final email. Monday, I was back at school teaching. I checked my email in between periods. Stephanie Strom had written back. She said she wanted to come do an interview for a major feature story in the New York Times. Oh, man. I forwarded her email to my friend and I said, guess who said she wouldn't touch our story with a 10-foot pole and now wants an interview? That's what hustling will get you. I beat my chest. I talked all kinds of smack. And then I realized that I had not hit forward. 
I'd hit reply. And the moment I sent the email, you just baited me because I totally thought that the the most embarrassing thing was like I didn't know about this information. No, no, <laughs> no, no way. it was so much worse than that. So I sent this trash talking. Guess who said she wouldn't touch our story with a ten foot pole and now wants an interview email directly to that reporter. And I, I, I yanked the electrical cord from out of the computer to try and turn it off before the email would send, but I was too late and it sent. So I sent her another email apologizing for being so dumb again. And she took mercy on me and it didn't hold her back from no. proceeding to do a story that, that right. said donors choose might, might be the future of philanthropy. And, and that is really to her credit and to my boneheadedness. And I've never... So um, two apologies in. in. <laughs> two apologies in. And I th everybody needs that experience of, you know, that one inadvertent, you know, you're replying when you think you're forwarding. And mine was just especially traumatic. And I, you know. I, uh, I do know there are people in the room that have experienced that. <laughs> okay, so what happened after the story? So she do, does this story. She does the story. And um, I had mentioned that the Newsweek writer who had uh, first done a paragraph or two about us, Oprah Winfrey's producers saw that one paragraph in Newsweek. And, uh, in Newsweek, okay. In Newsweek, yeah. All right, the and, Newsweek one. and called up and said, seems like what you and your students are doing is kind of interesting. We'd, we'd like to feature it on Oprah. And I was ready to hustle. I wasn't actually that media savvy, but I did know enough to know that that was kind of a big deal if, if Oprah uh, well, is looking to during that, shine I mean, during a spotlight. That time, I mean, she's just a massive celebrity at that yes, point. Yes, yes. Wow. Yes. My students were on their very best behavior when her show like sent a limo to pick me up after school. Oh my I, goodness. It's pretty impressive to my yeah, students. Yeah. Um, They're like, my teacher is bad <laughs> they, were, they were like very well behaved for like at least two days. That's, yeah. that's, what, that's what Oprah They're was like, good for. They're like, this person is not only digital savvy, he's got <laughs> Oprah picking him up in a limo. <laughs> teacher in the Bronx, this is amazing. Okay. Yeah. And she shined her spotlight on donors choose. In fact, she, she came into the green room uh, right before the the show and said, you know, normally the rule for Harpo Productions, for, for Oprah's production outfit, is to send viewers to Oprah.com and then find a link to the website that she was recommending. But she said, because you're a teacher, I'm going to dispense with that rule and I'm just going to call out donorschoose.org on air. I'm not going to tell people to go to Oprah.com and find a link. I'm going to just send them all straight to your website. No way. Which meant that we melted down immediately the first mention of donorschoose.org. Um, we couldn't even show a fail whale or an error message. It was just blankness. Um, 501 error, yeah. Yes, yes, we, we were obliterated. And it took us, I think, like seven or eight hours to get back up on our feet, as it were. But when the traffic subsided, we got back up again. And then we started fielding phone calls from people all over the country who wanted to see Donors Choose expand to public schools in their cities and states. Because wow. at the time, Donors Choose was only open to New York City public schools. And that meant the beginning of our expansion across the mm -hmm. country. Wow. So the Oprah thing happens, you get like a significant amount of, I'd say, media attention. So you've had two stories in Oprah. That's right. Wow. That's right. That's right. And you know, most of the guys who would call in the wake of the Oprah show, interested in seeing donors choose expand, all had to begin the phone call with an excuse as to how it was that they were watching Oprah. They were like, <laughs> my wife 
you know, had the remote the and I was just channel surfing and I saw the story on it's Donors complicated. Choose. The first but I was watching over. That's right. It was complicated. <laughs> yeah. The first guy who was self-actualized enough to be like, I love Oprah was the first philanthropist we engaged with and expanded to North Carolina public schools. Man, that's amazing. Okay, so that's initial traction. Talk about a little bit of the growth because one of the things that's happening is you are using to get the attention to build the marketplace. You had enough enough traction to get it's sort of the teachers to pay attention. And then you've got you know donors paying attention and, and it's sort of micro donations that are happening at this point. You had media. Media was the thing that got the attention to bring both parties together. That's right. right. So did the same thing happen when you had to expand? Because that initial uh, sort of nexus and initial traction is one thing, but expansion-wise, how did you start to bring more and more? How did you get to get the traction to build a more expanded marketplace? This this conversation is staging maybe even better than than you realize. So if if the beginning was food bribery and handwriting letters uh -huh. to start the flywheel spinning of teachers and donors coming to the marketplace. And the next stage was media coverage to get more donors and teachers onto the site. I think the third stage was cause marketing. And an example of this would be the partnership we did with Crate and Barrel in the very earliest years of Donors Choose, where we went to them saying, hey, we, we've created a new feature on Donors Choose for a gift card so that someone can give another person a donor's choose gift card and they can spend that gift card on a classroom request of their choice. It's like a, a philanthropic gift card. Wow. And we went to Crate and Barrel and we pitched them on giving donor's choose gift cards to their best customers. And we even, we kind of ghost wrote uh, a cover letter for them saying, hey, Crate and Barrel customer, you've invited us to enrich your home by shopping at Crate and Barrel. Now we'd like to invite you to enrich a classroom. Here is $25 for you to spend on the classroom request of your choice and get the, the feedback from, from the classroom. And Crate and Barrel was up for it. They were even up to do a test, a study, to see whether or not giving out these donors choose gift cards had lifted purchase intent and even sales at Crate and Barrel by, by the customers who got these gift cards? And the short answer is yes. Uh, and in fact, the, the Wall Street Journal did a, a story saying, ah, here finally is a demonstration of a company doing well by where they actually quantified just how well they did by through, through an act of charity. Because all these Crate and Barrel customers who got this Donors Choose gift card were like, this is amazing. No company has ever done anything like this for me before. I'm going to spend that $25 on a classroom request of my choice. And you bet I'm going to be back at that Crate and Barrel store sooner than I had planned and ready to spend more than I would have otherwise. Um, and that's an example of they where, do that in like this is the tester in me. Did they do that in geographies, or is this some sort of like they had some attribution where they they had their their customer and they looked at the profiles that they sent them to and saw you know their accounts go up? They actually did random assignment. Uh, okay. So there were some. It, it was uh, customers within a I think a five mile radius or ten mile radius of a crate and barrel store who had spent more than two hundred dollars over the last six months. So we're talking engaged, uh, important customers not far away from a crate and barrel store. That was the population. Sending and, email or physical mail? Uh, it was a physical mail gift card wow. at first and subsequently it was email. Okay. Um, and th there was random assignment, so there could be true isolation of um, just how much did purchase intent and actual 
purchases increase as a consequence of of doing something good. Yeah. Uh, but but putting the power in the hands of the customer. It was not just Crate and Barrel saying we out of our philanthropy budget did this good thing. We're you, not looking you should, for growth. You should know about it. Uh, instead, it was Crate and Barrel empowering its customers to each be micro philanthropists wow. and to support a classroom request of their choice. And th that then became a model for a huge range of cause marketing partnerships that don't just drive dollars to teachers' requests, but bring new people onto the site. To give the last uh, example of that um, Crate and Barrel partnership, it meant that thousands and thousands of people were coming to Donors Choose to spend the gift card yes. that Crate and Barrel had just given them. So this was not just about a company supporting Donors Choose, it was a, a method for getting consumer donors onto our site. Yeah, And, and today there are um, more than 200 corporate partners and businesses that we work with. We're here in Oklahoma City. Sonic Drive-In is, is one of the most generous. That's amazing. So it's a brilliant idea. I don't know if it was an accident or what you were thinking about, but ultimately it's like when you give a gift card, it's typically two sales like that. And that, that's, that's what you guys found out is you're like, hey, we can get the corporate partnership. They're going to get a reputation benefit. They're also going to get a, you know, a financial benefit and you're going to get a sale too. And, it, and, and both of you, you know, potentially get repeat, kind of repeat customers. And that's one of the things that I'd really, I think is really interesting about uh, marketplaces especially one of the things that you're talking about is like, okay, we got 9-11, we got Oprah. We have these moments where you probably have surges. And then the thing where that's really hard, I would say, is repeat donors, repeat buyers, repeat business. So talk to us about a little bit of like a trough and how you're like, oh man, this is how we get people to donate again. One of the challenges that Donors Choose has not completely solved for is repeat giving. On average, one in five of the donors who give for the first time in year one will be giving again in year two, right? So if, if we acquire five donors for the first time in one year, just one of those five donors will be giving again in the subsequent year, wow. which, which sounds like a discouraging retention rate. Um, I think it's actually typical of marketplaces where um, each item in the marketplace is kind of unique. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know the exact data for, for Kickstarter or for Etsy or for uh, uh, sites like that, but, but I think that our retention rate is not totally, is not so very different. The, the good news is that um, we do tend to retain the, the most generous five donors. So on a dollars basis, our retention is higher than one in five, higher than 20%. Mm -hmm. um, and yet it means that donors choose has to be really thoughtful about our email marketing and how we inspire donors we've acquired to, to give again, because it, it remains our big challenge. Well, with it being so a niche where it's like, you know, funding teachers and projects, because you have a technology, but you also have a niche, right? And then you've got an audience and it's like, you can't just email for something that they don't necessarily care about, right? Like there, there's, there's these moments that they probably care about. So it's like, you can't just badger people for donations and you can't just pitch this idea because you have to figure out what pulled their heartstrings or to get them to take out their wallet in the first place. And that has got to be really challenging. You are capturing it exactly. Um, 
the, the beautiful thing about Donors Choose is there are about 50,000 classroom project requests live on the site at any moment. They cover every part of the country and every topic imaginable. It means that you could come to the site and say, I want to see teachers requesting the book that I read to my daughter last night. I want to see teachers requesting equipment for the sport that was my favorite in high school. I want to see, I love fishing. I want to see the fishing requests that teachers have created on Donors Choose. I love yoga. Show me the yoga projects. You can express a really personal passion and see projects that match. One immediate challenge is no one's actually been asked before, what is your philanthropic micro passion? Um, yeah. Like it's, that's, people aren't, don't have that answer ready. The, the, the search term isn't no. at their fingertips. Yeah. Like if I asked you, um, we might have to talk for a little bit before I could discover the ideal search term for you to express on Donors Choose to find a project that would really speak to your heart. If we can get donors to say, show me the fishing projects, show me the gardening projects, show me projects for the, for the book I read to my kid last night, then magic happens and we capture that that's their passion. Mm -hmm. And we subsequently will email market to them strictly those projects that match that passion. So if you were really into gardening, we'd send you on a monthly basis the latest gardening projects on Donors Choose. In the absence of that, because a lot of people defer to just to geography, here's where I am, show me what's near me. We did find that hometown is actually more resonant and leads to higher conversion than current location. So if we can find out where a donor grew up and show them classroom projects from where they grew up, that's actually going to be more powerful than showing them classroom projects targeted to their IP address. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio podcast. Be sure to join us next time for part two of our conversation with philanthropist Charles Best. If you'd like a written transcript of this conversation or to watch the unedited YouTube version of the podcast, see the show notes of this episode. Success is no accident, and we're here to help you run and grow a better business.